Hello, and welcome to Pan Dulce, a literary podcast hosted by Cinco Puntos Press in El Paso, Texas. My name is Jessica Powers, and I am an editor at Cinco Puntos. We're here today with two of the finest writers in America, Octavio Solis and Sergio Troncoso, both writers that El Paso is proud to claim as our own. Octavio Solis is one of America's most prominent playwrights. His fiction and plays have appeared in the Louisville Review, 1111, Catamaran, Chicago Quarterly Review, and the Royal Literary Review, among others. Retablos, Stories from Life Lived Along the Border, published by City Lights, is his first book. Sergio Troncoso is the author of multiple books for adults and has won many awards for his writing. He has taught at the Yale Writers' Workshop for many years and serves as vice president of the Texas Institute of Letters. A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son, a collection of short stories published by Cinco Puntos Press, is the book we are discussing today. Thank you guys for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's good to be here. Thank you, Jessica. Yep. Before I ask Sergio and Octavio to launch into a discussion with each other, I wanted to describe these two books, which are very different in many ways. Octavio's book is creative nonfiction, stylistically a series of very short essays comprising memories of growing up in El Paso, Texas. As the title Retablo suggests, these short essays are icons or iconic of what it's like to grow up along the U.S.-Mexico border. And as such, Octavio pays tributes to themes that have been explored in Chicano literature about the border for the past 40 years, issues that also come up in Sergio's book. Sergio's collection of short stories is, both genre-wise and stylistically, very different from Octavio's book. If Octavio's book can be described as staccato bursts of memories about growing up on the border, Sergio's stories are, though taught and controlled in language and plot, more languid expressions of the same themes Octavio explores. So while in genre and stylistically the two books are different, they do explore issues of identity and belonging, of the importance of family, particularly in Mexican culture, Mexican-American culture and daily life on the border, and with regards to Mexican-American culture and daily life, the role that institutions such as the church, the police, and the border patrol, not to mention the neighborhood and community, play in a young person's upbringing. Sergio's short stories also specifically explore what happens to young people when they leave the border and try to make a life for themselves in other parts of the U.S. Octavio's short memoir essays focused entirely on the time he spent growing up in El Paso, but those essays are predicated on the fact that he, like Sergio's protagonists, and like Sergio himself, left the border to make his fortune elsewhere. So both books regard the U.S.-Mexico border with a kind of hardened or even weary nostalgia and a love that shines through the raw, sometimes brutal depictions of daily life here. And so I thought both, of, you know, there were a lot of things that made your books different from each other, but they, there were so many things that drew them together. And I found that a really compelling. Um, so before I let you guys launch into your discussion with each other. Would you each read an excerpt from your work? Of course. Um, I'll, I guess I can start by reading an excerpt from uh, one of my retablos called Saturday. And, uh, and it's, uh, it begins like this. Listen to that. That's what is you hear. That is where we are once a month on Saturdays. Riding along La Avenida de las Americas with that crazed accordion erupting from the radios all around. Paleteros taking their smoke break on the curb. There's the old cop who watches over our park station wagon for a modest $10 mordida from my dad. He's got a gold tooth in his smile and duct tape around the handle of his gun. His armpits wet and ripe with his morning smell, but it's all a morning smell here. There's the Centro Prona where we do our shopping. My mom filling her cart with things half the cost of those that are piggly wiggly. Plaza tortillas are always better here, chamacos. A short walk through the mercado where the old woman sits on a stool hawking the leather belts in her leather hands and the piñatas dangle from the ceiling like paper mache gods and piles and piles of serapes and blankets amid black velvet paintings of Jesus and Pancho Villa and the Beatles. And the taquitos are fresh here. Sit outside and eat some with a Fanta while Dad throws a few centavos on the street to delight the urchins with feet hard as stone. And that little one looks like someone he remembers, maybe himself as a boy. 
and he gives him a half dollar coin more. Poverty is obvious in Juarez. It's out in the open, tugging on our sleeve, thronging around us for whatever surplus scraps of hope we've got. And uh, so that was from Saturday, which is about our visits to uh, Ciudad Juarez, uh, which is right across the border from El Paso. It's where we used to do all our shopping, where we got our haircuts, where we filled up the cars with gasoline. Um, and we would go there every week, every weekend, a Saturday or a Sunday. They were really wonderful, wonderful times. Thank you. That was amazing. Um, Sergio, do you want to read from your... Yes. Um, so I'm going to read from my first story uh, called Rosary on the Border. And uh, the first person protagonist is um, David Calderon. And he's coming back to El Paso to bury his father. And this piece I'm going to read is just uh, a reflection, trying to make sense as he's coming back to El Paso and has left El Paso and trying to make sense of what all of that meant. I made many decisions some awful and others brilliant, but I found ways to keep that openness in my soul that meant more to me than breathing. I told him over the years what I was doing, how I was trying what no one in my family had ever tried to do. When I was failing, I admitted that as well, and they listened politely. I also knew that's all my parents could do. One lonely night in Connecticut, I pulled myself from a window's ledge, no one else next to me. Another day, I chose to do something someone like me should have never accomplished, and yet I did, and kept going. I learned to recognize when others like Jean were much better than me because they had faith in my soul. I believed in very little, but I kept going until I would get tired or defeated and then I would take time to discover another wall to throw myself at. I was, and I am, and I will be, a peculiar kind of immigrant son. I got old, and that made everything better, including me. So that's from Rosary on the Border, uh, the first story in, in this collection of linked stories on immigration and Mexican-American diaspora. I love that story. It's... It, it's uh that you open the entire collection of, of, of stories with this one is very telling that you open with a, with a death uh, and the death of the protagonist's father um, and how much this man is, all, is already a, an outsider in his own culture, how far, how far he, in distance he feels, he feels from it. Um, and yet, at the same time, how quickly he's immersed in it all over again. Uh, I just thought it was a terrific story. Well, and, and, and it's interesting, that, Octavio, that, you know, because I think we both have a lot of sort of stories and I issues with our fathers. And, oh, yeah. and you know, and, and I, I remember reading, you know, uh, your your retablos on your on your father, you know, who was a short order cook. And I, I'm dying to find out what restaurant it was because I probably, I probably went to it. Um, and, and by the way, we're both from the lower valley, which is even closer than, you know, both from, you know, you're from Riverside and I'm from Isleta. Um, so, I mean, I'm just sort of interested for me that kind of I belong, yet I did not belong in Isleta. It all began with my father, you know, the, and the relationship I had with him, which was, you know, very close, but also very conflictual at the same time. I had the same things. I, I had the same sort of ambivalent relationship with my dad that finally was resolved uh, um, late in my adulthood. In my adulthood, and, uh, and and I see him now, and I understand him, and I understand his choices. I understand uh, his his uh, distance. Um, his his whole life he was was spent in labor for us. Um, but it also meant that he was always at some remove from us. Um, the restaurant, by the way, that we both worked at was Chico's Tacos. I knew oh, it. Chico. I knew it was Chico's. <laughs> no. and, and, and by the way, I, I love that phrase at the end and on your, one of your retablos on your father with era cabron. Mm. You know, and at the same time, sort of, you know, he had to be what he had to be. Um, but at the same time, 
it's it's almost and I'm sorry. I think that's that's the name of the retablo, mm-hmm. um, and so it's this mix of, you know, perhaps I didn't have a lot of a choice to be who I was. Yeah, but it, but he acknowledges it too. He really does acknowledge that, and that that meant a lot, and that he and that he said it while he was holding his beer, and, and then he set the beer down almost as if like you know I'm this is it. I'm a new person now. And he did change dramatically after that moment. Um, and But I took the beer up and I drank from his beer um, almost to, as if to say um, that, uh, that I am my father's son, that, mm-hmm. that no matter what happens, I am still his son. And, and I have to own that and, and proudly. Um, but it also meant that then I started having my own alcohol issues after that. Uh, uh, so things get passed down, and uh, both the good and the bad, and the and the strange. There was um, in in an earlier essay, actually, I thought there was a real moment of reconciliation between you and your dad too when you started first working at the restaurant. Um, and you know, you say you're definitely not Tavi Junior. Um, <laughs> But by the end, you're watching your father as he lifts that amazing, you know, that heavy refrigerator in the back, I think it was. Um, And you you can see that in that moment, you you still want to be yourself, but you're admiring him, who he is, what he does, how he does it without complaint. And and so I can see all those moments of both um, this dance that you're having with your father where you're you're moving away but you're moving forward you're you don't want to be like him but you admire certain elements of him um uh, that's 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 right and it's also because i i had an opportunity at last to see him how other to see him as as others regard him not just me i have i have my own particular context for how i view my dad but seeing him among his peers, among the people that he works with, among the customers. He's a, he, he was a different man uh, and a respected man. He still is. Um, and uh, and that, that sort of forced me to, to, uh, to, see my, to, to come to terms with my own shortcomings with, uh, um, in terms of how I viewed my, my, my father. Um, so it was a, t- a very telling moment. Um, I don't know what else to say about that, uh, except that, except that um, Sergio's uh, father in this story, uh, just through the memories that he replays, he just becomes such a very, very vivid figure. And, and I'm also struck by how in the story, um, the protagonist, um, I, I can't try to remember his name. I can't remember. Um, in, in the first story? First story. Yeah, David Calderon. David Calderon. Oh my gosh, it's like I know a David Calderon. That's really, that was a little scary about the story. Um, it, it, how he doesn't want to sit in judgment of the people around him uh, with their sanctimoniousness, uh, but he can't help it. He knows that he, he can see through them and he sees how his own father's being disrespected. When they place a flower in his in, in his hand, when they slip a note, a Jehovah's Witness message in his in, in the pocket of his coat, uh, and he and, and he has to correct that. He feels compelled to correct that for his father, no matter how his father treated him, um, because he was very severe, uh, a very severe, almost dictatorial uh, toward his son. But at the same time, he feels his father needs to be respected. Well, um, it, and, and I think, I mean, that's sort of a, a common theme that I certainly, you know, experienced, you know, as a kid from Isleta, you know, the the severity of how we were brought up, but also, you know, the values that they, that they gave us and that uh, made me able to, when I left Isleta, although, you know, I would get beaten up, you know, sometimes physically, but really more intellectually, how they really taught us to fight back, taught us to respect who we were. And so ultimately that story, you know, the rosary on the border is, is really about 
about that coming to terms with his father and 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 you know the the difficulties he had with with him and 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 you know some of it is somewhat autobiographical you know there, i remember when when my father did die about 3 years ago um a neighbor uh came up to me and uh and and you know it you know it was packed on on uh you know, at, at Mount Carmel, you know, which we both know, it's a, the church on the on the lower valley, and 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 a neighbor came by, uh, a lady I know who was my the same age, and he said, "Well, you know, your father, you know, was at least there, and he loved you guys. You know, ours was drunk and gone, and and so that you know, it it, it gave me you know, instead of being so critical as a kid, always being under the, his thumb." Uh, I also sort of appreciated that he was there, that he was trying to teach us the right things. Yeah, he was present. That makes all the difference. For however our fathers or our mothers may have been with us uh, as as children growing up, um, they stuck by us. And because they did, we're all kind of where we are. I I have to own that. I have to attribute my, my own success to the upbringing of my parents. I know it seems really sort of uh, uh, cliche to say that, but I really do feel that. Hey, hey, Octavio, can I ask you a question on craft? Because I'm I'm fascinated by your point of view. So this first-person point of view on on a lot of your, on on all your retablos, you know, whether you're a 10-year-old or a 13-year-old or at the end towards uh, an 18-year-old, Mm-hmm. And 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 you're present in the moment that you're recalling from from the lower valley from El Paso, but and and reflecting on what it means. But then you 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 pull out and give sort of a, an adult point of view, like this is what it means. But this mocoso wouldn't really understand it until later, and and that's kind of shifting perspective, going being in the moment and then coming back out and telling the reader what it means. Like, how did you choose that shifting perspective? I, I think that's fascinating. And you did a wonderful job, by the way. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it, it's actually something I learned from my, uh, from my work as a playwright, as, as uh, working on stage with actors, um, because I don't come through this kind of prose naturally. Uh, I, I write dialogue. So I, in terms of how to tell these stories, I could only, the, the, the best way I felt uh, I could enter into them was through imagine this character, this person, the, the narration, the, the person telling the story as a character, telling it to somebody else, uh, to an audience. Um, and, and like an actor, I, 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 in my plays, my actors often step out of the, the scenario to address the audience, or to or to address another character um, in in another space and another time. Um, I just thought that would be a good tool to use to just just get me writing because I because the third person perspective is uh, is is um, uh, often uh, well for me it's not natural it's not because because that's not how I write normally i write from uh, a playwright's perspective that is i write voices for characters and and the third person voice uh, it gets lost in that because then that's what the audience provides um so um th- there's one story I-, I had written that was about uh, a- 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 about a-, a time when when uh the police came to our house and um I wanted to describe, I was inside the story and I wanted to describe what I was feeling, but the only way I could do that was as who I am now, because I didn't have the language. I knew if I were true to that character at that age, I would he wouldn't have the language, the tools to even describe what he's going through. So I had to say, well, I have to project myself 20, 30 years to when I do have the language and say, this is what I would have wanted to say. I want to say this to the policeman about my father um, and the situation in our house. But uh, I just don't, I, you know, the only way I can do that is if I can project myself, step out of the story to give that, that voice. Um, yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think that's, 
that's really actually it was it was all just using the tools of, of theater uh, to help me with that. Uh, but also I've done the, I've done the reverse in my plays now. My characters are engaging more and more in storytelling, so they'll you know it'll be almost like they're doing a scene, and when they start talking about the past, the past will enter the room on stage. The walk on actors will come on stage, and they'll participate in in that memory as if it's happening all over again um, with the other characters on stage as, as witnesses or as an audience. So it's like a play within a play. Mm-hmm. And, and the benefit of that is that the character who's telling the story can both be participating in the story and then turn to the other actors, the other characters that are listening to it and relate to the relate to him what it's what's going on inside of him in, inside of in, in, what what he's thinking what he's feeling uh which usually we just can't do in in fiction i mean in in a play in fiction you can what you just read earlier Sergio, was so beautiful and so wonderfully articulate but we don't often have a chance to do that on stage because on stage it's all about what happens next and right. then what happens and then that what happens after that it's all it's all action driven even if the action is is purely emotional uh, it still is it, it, it's about what are the changes that happen beat by beat and uh, and so I miss that uh, on stage uh, but I'm still trying to find ways to incorporate those wonderful tools that we have as that, that you have as a fiction writer. There's there's one passage I want to read, and and it's from uh, um, oh gosh, uh, a living museum of love, in which you articulate so well what I have been going through for the last thirty years, and what people of uh, Latinos like us who have moved on out of El Paso, out of where we lived, out of our situation, to more uh, prosperous um, environments, what, what, we, what we have to deal with. You write in this uh, about, he's talking about, um, about students, students that are coming into his class. He's, you wrote, he imagined them as selves of what he could have been perhaps how his son would be in college, without the abject poverty of the border, like a boulder strapped to the back of their heads, without the fear of the self that does not belong, without that weakness that distrusts and dismisses its own voice. And I just went, wow, you nailed it. This is what we go through constantly, checking ourselves to go, well, you know, I don't really belong here, but you know, I, I don't belong there either. And so we, we carry it like a millstone on our backs, our memories of where we rose from, who we were before, and, 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 and the, the families that are still there, the people we still know that are there, uh, how um, they remind us ultimately of who we really are. Oh, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I call it... Um, taking the border with me, you know, even, even though I've lived in New York, um, I, you know, every single thing, every value that, um, my, my parents taught me it's present today. And, you know, I talked to my, I just talked to my mother yesterday. And so they're not, they're really present, although they're not necessarily here. So this, this collection, you know, a peculiar kind of immigrant son, it's, it's, it's that like taking the border with you to New York, to Connecticut, to wherever you're going, and and those boulders that we have to carry, um, that really never go away. Even though you, you may have the trappings of success, um, you know, and I think we we all have sort of experienced that. I, I know, and and then just when we think we're finally just being that we finally have shed that, when we feel like we're firmly woven into the fabric of everyday American life. We're always reminded in some way, in some little way, of who we really, how we're really seen, who we right. really are. Yeah, or, or or some 
some crazy idiot comes and shoots and kills 22 people in El Paso at a Walmart, having no idea what El Paso really is or the people there or its values. Exactly. Exactly. And I was going to raise uh, that same specter of violence in, in the story that you wrote uh, about this man who is led a well-to-do life. He's living in Connecticut. He's married and everything seems to be fine with his life. And then he has someone come walking up his driveway and he undergoes the most severe violence. And, and we don't know why. We don't know. And it doesn't really matter why. Um, the one thing that does stand out is that at some point, this man looks right at that character's face and calls him a spick and, uh, and, and, and then enacts on him the most terrible violence, uh, which, um, is, uh, which brought to mind immediately the shooting that happened in El Paso. Um, I've been, I, I've gone through so many identities, um, as, as a Latino growing up and being involved in, in academia and, and, uh, and in the theater scene, in the art scene. Uh, I've, I've gone from being a Hispanic to being a Chicano again, to being Mexican-American, to being Latino, to being Latinx. <laughs> uh, but I think now, it's what's more important to me now is to be an El Pasoan. Uh, right. I feel I have to embrace that vigorously to to stand up for the people that that uh, have suffered the terrible violence that happened uh, a few months ago. Well, and, and 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 you know, I think we all face that. That that I think we it doesn't matter how what station, how high we are at, that we have to keep fighting for that vision of the border that's complex, that's real, that's really El Paso. You know, when I wrote I wrote a CNN piece right after, a few days after that, the violence. And what I don't tell a lot of people is after that CNN piece appeared, uh, I got a lot of hate mail from people all over the country um, because they were pissed off that I was defending El Paso and, you know, and, and in many ways sort of alluding to this, this crazy uh, guy from the suburbs of Dallas that, you know, he may have been right. Um, and so... It doesn't matter how high you are, you know, they will try to bring you down. Yeah, and I think I think it's no accident that he came to El Paso, that he did it, that he wanted to do this in El Paso, um, because El Paso gives a lie to this notion that uh, Mexicans coming over who live, who come from uh, from Mexico across the Rio Grande to the U.S. Uh, are it gives a lie to the to the notion that they are violent that they can't uh, be, ever become assimilated into American society. El Paso is one of the most peaceful cities in the country, and it gets along. It, they, they, the people there think of themselves as wholly Americans, and uh, and, it, and and it, but El Paso also it represents what this country will be. In about 30 years, in about 30 years, the majority population in the United States will be Latino. And, and, and I think some of the things that I think I'm just and I'll, I know Jessica probably is dying to get in, into this discussion. Yes. But, 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 you know, I've, I've written a lot about how the people from El Paso, the Mexican immigrants, really represent the same or similar kind of values that people like the pilgrims came came over where they were fleeing you know some some place to get sanctuary where they came to work until they dropped and then get up and do it again the next day and and this and this is what has been forgotten i think in many ways people are afraid to compete against that immigrant that is that will do whatever it takes you know to work and to succeed and and they simply you know they're sort of reveling in their white privilege and and don't want to to compete against that that immigrant coming from from you know south of America and, and Mexico. Yes. yes. What I was going to say um, about all of that was you know hearkening back a little bit to a couple of things you said, Octavio, was that I think those of us that grew up in El Paso, we've always been proud of you know our identity. I, I certainly have carried my identity as an El Paso and everywhere. It's always home. I always refer to it as home. I haven't lived there for about 15 years. 
but it's home. And you made a comment about um, that El Paso represents what the country will be in about 30 years. And, and, and I think I would rephrase that a little bit to say that um, El Paso represents what the country can be and perhaps should aspire to be in 30 years. And by what I mean about that is I feel so fortunate to have grown up in El Paso in an immigrant community where, as you mentioned, Sergio, people will do whatever they need to get by. And and what has always amazed me about El Pasoans and the community that my parents live in, which is outside of El Paso in Anthony, um, Anthony, Texas and Anthony, New Mexico, is you see every day people get knocked down and they don't give up. They get up again and they keep trying. And there's a tremendous um, grace and strength in that that I think um, we don't always see in other parts of the United States. And um, to be able to have witnessed that every day growing up has, I think, given me an understanding of um, the abilities of human nature and, and, and what we really can endure and achieve um, if we have gumption, you know, um, oh, yeah, definitely. but, uh, uh, but also, isn't it fun to kind of in like in fiction in a pretend world, be able to actually like lash out. Um, there's this terrific story that I just read that you wrote Sergio, uh, about this, uh, uh um, I forget the character's name, but he's, uh, uh, he's in a Starbucks and he runs into, he sees this commentator reporter who is a, a rabid racist uh, ra- that rails against immigration and, uh, and, and Mexican immigrants. And, uh, and he sees them daily on TV and he imagines like what, it would have been so easy to kind of push him out into traffic and make him, you know, just, hit by a car or something but he does nothing he feels like who am i if i can't if i can't do anything about this i have to do something and he does (laughs) it's really it's it's stark and uh, and funny and and it feels so satisfying he he basically becomes an assassin a quiet assassin yeah ricky quintana Ricky, Ricky Quintana. Um, oh yeah, because one of the one uh, um, uh, with with the, with the Ferragamo tie that becomes an assassin. Yes, with the Ferragamo tie, and uh, and he even at the end says, "Let's go celebrate." And his wife says, "Something what?" <laughs> but we know we know what he's celebrating. He got away with it. Uh, some, sometimes we feel like. Like we want to do that, and to do that in a story just feels like okay. We can let it out this way. We know it's wrong, but to find a way to at least in story be able to lash out and get some justice in this way feels so tremendously satisfying. Well, sometimes wrong is also good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have this uh, this uh, Quixote nuevo, this adaptation of Don Quixote called. Quixote Nuevo that I said along the border and my Quixote is a Cervantes scholar who's in the early throes or maybe even mid throes of uh, of Alzheimer's so he's going through some dementia as he rides around on his bicycle uh, trying to become he conflates moments from his own past with moments from the novel that he's been teaching all his life and uh, uh, but at, at one point uh he attacks a border patrolman who has lined up all these uh, uh, these un- undocumented aliens uh, against the wall, and he attacks them and t- and sets them free and says, "Run away!" And uh, the audience cheers sometimes at this; they cheer at it, um, and sometimes there's gasps, like they can't believe that he did that. They were willing to see him be transgressive in other ways. But striking an officer who's doing his job, they just find that like, oh, oh, you really went too far here. Um, but at the same time, there's some satisfaction that you can at least get through story 
that we can't we, we can't see happen in real life. Um, well, or at least we're not admitting it publicly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I thought that was a fabulous story. It kind of snuck up on me. And I said, no, is he really doing that? He's going to get caught. He's going to get discovered. And, and no, he just he doesn't. By switching the pills, his heart pills for vitamins. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and in, in, in my, you know, I have a background in philosophy. One of my degrees is in philosophy. And I'm always interested in questions like, uh, is there a right reason to murder people? Yeah. Uh, you know, what is your moral responsibility when you see something wrong? Is it to walk away or is it to actually do something? Yeah, yeah. That's a, you, you laid it out very, very well. And, and then in another story, um, which I think is, to me, my favorite story is, is Library Island. And, and there you have the nightmare scenario that we have all been, that has always been sort of playing out in the back of our minds, uh, all of us who are brown. We have this scenario playing out of uh, this negative utopia or, 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 or actual chaos in this country uh, as the situation gets as bad as it can be and immigrants are being killed or being arrested uh, or deported or uh, disappeared. Um, and in this story, um, your, your, your characters go through a kind of uh, a series of ordeals in order to find refuge in Library Island, uh, which um, seems almost like, like um, antithetical for like how to actually find safety. Uh, it's, it's, it's this ritual of reading reading, reading, reading all these books and being tested on them. And if you fail the test, you disappear. Uh, bad things happen. You don't know what bad things, but something bad happens. Um, and then when you make it, you do end up in a secure place. These characters end up in, a, in, in, in safety and in a place where they can have intellectual freedom and, and security. But it's also a trap because it's an ivory tower and it elevates uh, us to a position where we deem everything else and everyone else as lesser, as animals. And so you're kind of, it's, it's, it's a cautionary story about like, how far can we, uh, can we um, go with this idea of as long as we are in our, in, in our sanctuary, where we can think freely and educate ourselves and be educated, um, uh, at, at what point can it become a dangerous thing? Right. Well, it's an interesting metaphor, I think, both for um, the United States of America as it is. And, you know, I mean, obviously it's a futuristic and fantastical world and in many ways nothing like like what we are, but, but that sense of boundaries and the sense of, of keeping things out and the sense of ideological purity within, um, are, are metaphorically, there's just so many ways that this could be seen as a, you know, metaphor for where some people might want to take the United States or, or even just thinking about, okay, on a much more individual level, like leaving, say the border and going out and, and somehow making it, in outside of, you know, this world that we know that we grew up on, that's um, in the margins, etc. And do you have to maintain this kind of facade of ideological um, beliefs that other people expect from you in order to still maintain the safety? Like there, it can work as a metaphor for so many different things. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's like when you make it, how, you know, you, you need to separate yourself. And, and what even what reading does, uh, it, it's a form of separation from society. Uh, yeah. and, and how that, you know, I mean, for me, the, when I started not belonging in Isleta was when, when I was devouring books and I was traveling in my mind at the local public library, you know, re reading Essie Hinton or, you know, that was then, this is now, or The Outsiders, which is really kind of my life, you know, with Gangas. But that's when I started separating myself from where I actually uh, was embedded as a person. 
Yeah, that, I did the same thing too. And in fact, what all that reading uh, resulted in is me turning into an Anglophile um, because I could disappear into Shakespeare, I could disappear into Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. And when I had the opportunity to study abroad, I didn't go to Mexico, I didn't go to Spain, I didn't go to South America, I went to England. And I studied for a year there. Immerse myself in English literature, in the novel, in, in English poetry. And I came back on with all that, but in but the some result was that I, I I was I separated myself from my own culture, from the world around me. Um and, uh, and, you know, it has its values. Those stories have something to say about our, our lives at any point in history. But it also is a way to kind of not engage, to not be involved. And, and it also, I mean, the story ends with a line, if we can only keep the mortal beasts at bay. Uh, when we start thinking of mortals as beasts, we're in trouble. We're in, we're, we're in trouble. And so it's... Uh, it's um, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's, it's a kind of a cautionary tale um, that you've written there. A very powerful one, Sergio, if I might, if I might say. Okay, can I ask you a question about this leaving and coming back home? Because you know, I, I, as I was reading retablos and you know the 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 retablos on your sister and, and you trying to, you know, sort of maintain that that really powerful emotional connection you had with her. And then she's sort of shooing you away, and and then you mention your travels to to London and and other places to, you know, as, as you got into literature. Do you think you're writing some of these retablos now is sort of a way of repairing and making sense of even taking advantage of that fundamental breach away from home? I I think so. I I I, I think um, they came to me. Um, almost like dreams. There was something dreamlike about them uh, during uh, some nights when I was struggling to write my plays, and I, I was undergoing some kind of writer's block. And and in the absence of any kind of dialogue that I was that I should have been hearing for my plays, I started hearing these other voices, and I I just couldn't put them in a play. I had to write them down as, as stories, as these as these fiction, these little fictions uh, based on memories. Well, there were memories, but they started taking more of a story-like uh, quality, um, and and then I started realizing that that they're kind of all um, they marked particular rites of passage in my growing up. So I, I think if I was repairing something, I think I was repairing I was repairing that boy, um, that skinny brown kid that that I used to be. I think I was I was I was. Uh, taking care of him more than anything else, um, and uh, but I can't see him in any other context except in, except in and around El Paso and around family and friends and the milieu of that city. But they're all about uh, trying to really um, understand who that boy was in order to sort of understand who I am now, um, and. Uh, and so I, I, I kept looking. I kept uh, trying to figure out uh, what what is the holy moment here? What is the rite of passage here? Um, I, I remember I had rosarios as well that, that I attended that I found quite frightening, really scary as, as a kid. Uh, but I, I but I only recall them now after reading a, rosario, a rosary on the border. Uh, uh, and 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 I think, oh wow, your 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 stories are opening up a whole new set of memories for me. Um, but I think of them as rites of passage. These are all rites of passage, and reliving them again uh, from the, the the point of view of this boy um, enables me to to um, guide him, to guide to guide that younger self through through those through those places um, um, I had hoped that maybe they would repair personal relationships or, or to help explain why things turned out the way they did 
And, and sometimes I think that that's happened and sometimes uh, it hasn't. Um, but that's, you know, the roll of the dice we take when we write things that are uh, personal. I'm sure, Sergio, you've had some personal responses from people at home to your stories. Oh, when they, people get pissed they, off. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> people get pissed off. You put me in this story, although, of course, I did not. But, uh, you know, people imagine... Um, I think one of the one of the things I probably would never do again is I went back to an Isleta High School reunion, and you know some guy who was half drunk put his arm around my shoulder and Sergio, you're writing about me, aren't you? And you know that's all I've really thought about for the last thirty, forty years. This drunken guy who's you know not done anything with his life, um, and I couldn't get away from him. And so the, there's all these imaginations that, of course, that they're using about what you're writing and and but it could be any any could be any anybody oh yeah i i was terrified after when bill at literarity asked me to come read there uh i was my parents came and my sister came with her husband and and their their children and and then something like 60 people from riverside high school from my class <laughs> came and attended the reading they had the book already. They just wanted me to sign it, but they wanted to hear me. They wanted to see me. And uh, I read the stories, and, and I didn't recognize a lot of them because I hadn't seen them since I was 18. Um, but then they started speaking, and it, I would go, oh, there's Martin. Oh, my gosh, there's Hector. Oh, wow. Um, all these people from my past came, and they loved it. They loved the book. Um, I was so terrified that they were going to hate it, that they were going to just feel uh, betrayed by my depiction of our lives growing up in El Paso. But instead, no, they, they actually embraced it. They really loved it. They felt uh, that I uh, depicted the kind of complexities of, uh, of, um, of our lives growing up there in the 60s and 70s. And, um, and I, I'm, I was humbled by that, very deeply humbled by that. We, you guys, I think I'm going to break in here and um, say we that this has been a wonderful conversation and we should probably um, let our listeners um, go. So are there any last things you wanted to say to each other or about the books? Well, I just I just think that that um, there's there's something in the water in El Paso because it seems to produce these amazing writers that I am just completely blown away by. And I have met a lot of them, or have learned of a lot of them in the last couple of years. Uh, Sergio, you're, you're the most recent one. I Forgive me for not knowing about you sooner, I should have. Um, but uh, if this book is any indication, you are, you're, you're one of our uh, leading lights in El Paso and in, and in the United States, just based on, on this book. But I can't wait to find your other books. But also, um, I come to to literature through reading the works of Arturo Islas, who I think is a, a, a wonderful, terrific, uh, was a wonderful, terrific novelist. And Dagoberto Gilb, who's a friend of mine. Um, also from Mesilla, uh, New Mexico, right by El Paso, is Carrie Fountain, who is a tremendous writer. So I feel very, very fortunate to be in your company. Well, and, and, and let me just sort of go on that theme, you know, that, that there is probably, there's certainly lithium in the water in El Paso, but I'm not sure that's producing the, <laughs> the writers. Um, but I think that it is, it is, has an astonishing literary legacy that, that I, certainly in my position right now at the Texas Institute of Letters, had made it a point to emphasize, you know, by, by bringing, you know, the organization to El Paso for the first time since 1936. And, and it, you know, and it went along with Steve Davis, who was president back then, but, but also recognizing the great writers that have come and are still in, in El Paso, you know, uh, Benjamin Sainz, of course, who's a, a friend of mine, and Daniel Chacon and Sasha Pimentel. I mean, there's just, you, you know, Rosa Alcala, you just, oh, you, know, you know, fantastic writers. And, and I think that this is the thing to think about, especially from you, if you're from the area, that El Paso has nothing to, to, to look, 
to be looked down on and, and we should fight for our place in Texas and beyond because we have a tremendous literary legacy, probably one of the most important literary legacies, certainly within Texas. And, and, and that's been true for a long time. Um, and, and so I hope, you know, as writers keep getting out there and fighting that fight of, of getting attention for El Paso and getting attention for the writers from El Paso, that that, that is recognized. And that certainly has been one of my uh, goals and one of my missions in life to always say, take a look at the people right there, whether we're talking about the laborers or we're talking about, you know, the writers at UTEP or, or the poets. You know, this is an important place. This place deserves attention. You know, people should be writing stories that are in literature uh, about this place. And certainly that's been one of the things that I have focused on. And, and, and Retablos is such a fantastic, I think, addition to this. Uh, I can't wait for, for the next one, Octavio. Uh, so you better get to work. <laughs> I know. I just uh, I, I I can't shake off this theater career. It's just uh, it's just blossoming right now uh, at, at such a level that I, I it's it's dizzying. This play Quixote Nuevo is closing this weekend at Hartford Stage and and then travels to the Huntington Theater in Boston and then to the Alley Theater in Houston. Um, and then I have a play called Mother Road, which is running here right now at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. But transfers to the arena stage in Washington D.C. in uh, February. So um, I gotta I, I, I gotta finish my my theater writing, or I gotta find make room more room for um, to to write more books because uh, I, I have felt nothing but encouragement uh, uh, after writing Retablos, and and I I have the itch, Sergio. I just gotta just gotta find the time. Uh, we'll have to learn to juggle. And I'm inspired by your book. It's just tremendous. Um, the the facility you have to move from one situation to another one and to write in all these various voices and to adjust your syntax to match the stories. It, it's such a, a deft hand with a great command of prose. It's just really good. It's uh, it, it sure is uh, providing me with a with a model that I can uh, that, that I can uh, work off of. It's just very inspiring. Well, thank you both for joining us at Pan Dulce. Thank you, Jessica. That was terrific, and I look forward to seeing you.